Hey everybody, Eric Wright here from the Disco Posse Podcast. Thank you for joining, and I am really proud about what you're about to hear in the show. This is both a story from the heart and from the depth of technology. We talk about incredible stuff that's being done by the team at Crunam with their CEO, Chris Wexler. But before we get in there, I do want to make sure that I give a huge shout out and a thanks to the folks that make this podcast happen, which begins with you. All the listeners who've been supporting us, that now we're just having such a great time. And of course, the folks that support us uh, financially as well uh, and through collaboration and community that we do. I got to give a thanks to our fine friends over at Veeam Software who've been incredible supporters. And with that, if you want to check out everything you need for your data protection needs, I legitimately stand by what they do both as a team, as a platform, and ultimately as a customer uh, where I've seen it in play. So if you want to check out V ee.am forward slash disco posse and you can go see what they've got this is gonna be everything from on-premises your physical servers your virtual servers your cloud servers SaaS platforms office 365 teams whatever you need you need to protect it including cloud native with their cast and offering and also completely automated fully orchestrated end-to-end disaster recovery with the veeam disaster recovery orchestrator it literally is everything you need for your data protection needs uh, from traditional backups ransomware protection all sorts of craziness so make sure you got your stuff packed up that's the way to do it so head over to vee.am forward slash and you can get that done and as well, uh, we had such a huge, huge offering that was bringing an incredible amount of response. And I am so humbled by the reaction to the four-step guide to delivering extraordinary software demos. I've had such a good run with the book and with the AMAs and the course that we're doing. Uh, so if you want to head to velocityclosing.com, you can see what I'm talking about. This is a guide that helps you to better connect with people to be able to talk and show what you're doing with your product, platform, services, you name it. This is a great way to be able to learn how to be a technical seller, to enhance your skills, product marketer, product manager even, technical account manager, whether it's dealing with analysts, dealing with customers, or prospective customers. This is the thing you need that will help you to really convey your value and make them care about what you do and make you an incredible part of their portfolio in the future. So check it out. Go to velocityclosing.com because it was such a good hit at 27 bucks that we actually plummeted the price and we're offering right now at $5 because we definitely want to make sure that this is accessible to everybody. I don't see a reason why we shouldn't bring more people forward in the industry. And this is my way of being able to help do that. And of course, one last thing I got to give a shout out because everything you need for your coffee needs can be met at one amazing place. If you head to diabolicalcoffee.com, this is the place where you can get devilishly good coffee, the most diabolically awesome swag. Oh, that's right. Check it out because there's a brand new design, a limited edition t-shirt that's coming out in June. This is from Zine Rashidi. He's a fantastic artist. Amazing. So this one's called Devil's Breath. So head over to diabolicalcoffee.com and you can pick it up live, watch in June. Also sign up for the newsletter and you can see what's coming. With that, let's start with Chris Wexler. He's the CEO of Crunom. And you not only find out what the background is to the name, what they're doing, but we talk about incredible the technical depth 
in what's seemingly an intractable problem that Chris and his team are solving. With that, here's Chris Wexler. I'm Chris Wexler. I'm the CEO of Kurnam, and you're listening to the Disco Posse Podcast. So, Chris, thank you very much for joining. I'm, it, you've got something that's a really interesting and challenging area of discussion. Hold on a second. Oh, yeah. Alexa, stop. <laughs> Alexa heard excellent and turned on. Sorry about that. That's she, people she's used to now always, muted. People used to that. <laughs> you could sit there and say Xbox, turn off, like on the radio, and just like really mess with people. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I, I want to thank you, Chris, for joining because you, when I saw the opportunity to chat come up, we've got a really interesting and, and challenging area of discussion because both, you know, the, the problem that you're solving touches on a really, really tough subject, you know, and most importantly, it's, it's, it's incredible that what you're bringing to the market. Uh, is going to to really have a, a, a profound social effect. And uh, but underneath it, of course, is the, the mission and the reason why you're doing what you and the Krunam folks are doing. So uh, before we dive into all of the things uh, for folks that are fresh to you, if you don't mind, Chris, let's give a quick bio on you and, and where folks can connect with you. And then we'll jump into the Krunam story. Absolutely. Uh, I am the CEO of Kurunam, uh, which uh, is a company that is dedicated to uh, eradicating child sexual abuse material online. Um, and my background is a, is a bit unique in that uh, I actually started on Capitol Hill. Then I was on Wall Street for five years. Uh, I then uh, was disillusioned and produced theater for a couple of years and then spent 20 years in digital marketing. And so, you know, the natural transition is to lead a software company, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Totally makes sense. So why not normal flow? <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, what, why I make changes in my career and why I focus is that I'm, uh, I'm always looking for the intersection of, uh, influence and technology. And so lo looking for where uh, we can use technology to um, drive uh, things forward, whether it was business when I was in the marketing space. In this case, it's literally driving forward social good. And so we're a public benefit corporation uh, and we're focused on really solving the internet's most intractable problems. And that's really, uh, in, it's exciting because as, as much as I liked uh, working with world-class brands like Microsoft and Chipotle and Harley Davidson over the years. In the end, I was just kind of moving widgets um, right. and it kept people employed. And I worked with amazing people, but uh, right now I'm, I have this amazing uh, global team fighting a problem that is uh, of an unimaginable scale. Last year alone, there were 65.4 million reports of CSAM being distributed on public platforms. Wow. And that's just what we know about. 
and it's the it's just a massive massive problem back in the 1980s the postal services around the globe really cracked down and had pretty much eliminated what people parochially call child pornography we don't use that phrase because pornography implies consent and as a child there is never a way to consent right um and so the postal service had really locked it down because it was a single point of failure but the internet opened up a broad swath for these predators to really um, have a trade in misery and so uh, when there was an amazing technology group out of London, Vigil AI, uh, that was looking to bring uh, technology that was developed for law enforcement to the public sphere, I just jumped at the chance. It was an exciting opportunity to work with my co-founders, uh, uh, Scott Page and Ben Gantz. Uh, Scott Page is a, a longtime uh, kind of bleeding edge technologist. Uh, he's worked uh, for 20 years in the areas of AI and uh, deep learning and computer vision and even uh, drone control. Like he does everything that I wish I knew how to do, he's <laughs> doing on a regular basis. Um, and uh, and then Ben Gantz was a, a, a child sexual assault investigator with the UK police. And they came together and decide and uh ben was like 80 percent of my time is going through confiscated materials terabytes of materials to determine is it illegal is it not if it is illegal what classification is it there has to be a better way and so they actually uh did a really cutting edge application of computer vision in you know computer vision is really good at going this is a cat this is a dog you right. know and it's even still problematic. Can't tell a Pomeranian from a blueberry muffin, though. We still struggle <laughs> with that one. Uh, but no, it well, is. It, it, but, but let's face it. Don't we all have a problem dis differentiating a Pomeranian from a blueberry I, uh, muffin? I love a tasty Pomeranian <laughs> in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's even has trouble with faces. And, and, you know, it's been trained on millions and millions of faces. There's still errors there. Um, we were asking uh, deep learning to really discern intent and behavior. And so um, that was an exciting element that uh, over, you know, four years of development, they were, we were able to actually get there and see on a fairly, you know, quite reliable basis, understand, okay, relative body size and, and position and this and that, and um, yeah. able to actually discern this. The other issue that we solve at Kronom is a data issue. Because unlike a lot of um, AI and machine learning where you're working on large either public data sets or collected data sets, we're working on illegal data, literally right. data we can't hold. And so um, we're lucky enough to work with uh, the UK Home Office, and they were smart enough back in 2013 to uh, start developing a, a, a collective database called CADE, um, the Child Abuse Image Database. It's millions and millions of instances that they've run across in their investigations. And so we literally drag our equipment into a Faraday cage and work with side by side with law enforcement to train our algorithm because we can't ever hold the data. Right. And so um, we're solving not only a hard computer vision and deep learning problem, but solving a data problem for the marketplace because it was kind of a catch 22 is that we have all this horrible data, uh, horrible images and videos washing around on the internet, 
but nobody could hold it to actually use uh, an algorithmic approach to rid rid us of it. So as a result, um, large you know even the largest of companies were either kind of faking their way into a training, which isn't very effective. But most likely what they were doing is they were waiting for a user to run into it, report it, and then a human to look at it and go, yep, that's what it is. Right. And there's damage all along that chain. And, you know, even, you know, we, we like to say that we're in the protection business. We are protecting uh, online communities because the, this is not what uh, these technologies should be used for. We're protecting employees because... Um, you see PTSD on a regular basis in content moderation. They are these poor people are uh, are seeing the worst of humanity every day. What you know, in violence and abuse of children, and so the less they have to um, really live in that space, the better they can do and help them make better decisions. Because the, the the last thing you want any community wants is to ban someone for something that isn't illegal. But if you're exhausted and you're emotionally drained and psychologically damaged by what you're doing, you're going to make bad decisions. And so this is something that uh, computer vision AI, you know, frankly, I say, if a computer's better at doing something, something repetitive and emotionally draining computer's really good at that let it do it and so uh you know as a support to those people we're there we're protecting brand reputations but the great thing is you know those are all business reasons to use us right the great thing is that when you do that you're also protecting millions of children all around the globe and uh it's uh it's exciting when you can have an alignment of business goals and societal goals in this case it's really clear now the the complexity of the technical challenge that you laid out like this i one of the biggest problems with with large machine learning and training on data sets and especially image sets because they're extremely large is that most of the the significant platforms are going to be cloud based and so how do you basically come in to you know like you said this is truly a faraday cage you're effectively cutting off from the world so there's no way that this data can escape but in doing so you've also means that you have to bring the whole machine with you so that in itself is a pretty significant technical challenge that most people i mean there's been huge advancements obviously and, you, and you're doing it which is what's incredible but it's not a most people would would get out of the game because of how difficult the problem that specific problem is to solve. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's just uh, a testament to Scott and Ben that uh, they realized the problem was worth the effort. Right. And, you know, uh, that, and, you know, that's why all of us are here at Kurnam, like why uh, we brought in Just Business, uh, a social incubator out of the Bay Area, and why we have partnered with Not For Sale. Uh, a nonprofit uh, that fights human trafficking. You don't get into that these this area without going. Okay, we're going to move mountains if we have to to save uh, these kids because it, you know it, it's a lifelong damage. It's not just a moment. Like uh, you and I get mugged on the street, we're, we're rattled, but it's not going to impact us twenty years down the road. When a child is abused, this is a lifelong damage. And, right. you know, the, there was actually a study done by the British government that uh, the impact of abuse of a, the sexual abuse of a child 
has a, a million dollars in negative impact to that economically to that child um, through extra services and health over the course of their life. I mean, so even on a, like a cold, uh, you know, like actuarial calculation that, you know, that's a, that's a massive amount of damage. Uh, and so if we can break that cycle, make it so less people are exposed to this content, therefore less people are intrigued to action therefore less and less people are willing to do this because they're afraid they're going to get caught. It becomes a, a virtuous cycle. And that's really what we're trying to build here. Yeah. In, in a way I mean, there's certain, there are certain crimes that are by the nature of the psychology of the crime are very much a time and place and opportunity. You know, bicycle theft is the most prominent example, right? People, it's the speed at which you can get on the thing and you can literally ride away the the proceeds of the crime like that's how they do it is they and and it's it's rarely a planned event it's it's something that they just see a bike that's not locked up and they 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 run away with it or they sometimes say okay here's an area where i know there's gonna be a lot of bikes a bit more both opportunistic and purposeful, you know, so yeah. it is premeditated. And this is a, an example where it's a very strong cycle that as people get involved and, and I've, I've worked, I actually worked for the police when I was, when I was younger and seeing how exposure to this effectively creates this cycle for that person that yeah. they then go really down a, a very dark rabbit hole of their own psyche because you've effectively enforced the human ability to get access to this part of their their brain you know and some would say their soul to mm -hmm. to go further and then mm -hmm. once you do that it, it effectively you know you are creating the learning behavior for that person that they can go further and then yeah. it becomes a thing of then meeting other people and then sharing and this is where like that's we saw a lot of that stuff that we've we've saw major sites that have been taken taken offline, and it's it's a real struggle because of the legalities around closing out these things. They're they're in locations that you can't shut down, right? They're they're exactly. protected by onion servers, and they're protected by by you know access to the Tor network. So it's, but I say this that there's obviously a huge complexity, and on top of that they're in flicker like that that's what's even more frightening is that a lot of the stuff just goes into open traditionally accessible public areas 4chans and of the world yeah. where they're broadly accessible and they they entirely rely on self-policing in order to close a lot of the stuff down yeah and you know it's it, there obviously are examples of it on big public um, spaces, but you know, it's a lot of the, the, we like to talk about how these predators are using every tool we're using, you know, right. when it comes to, you know, and, but a lot of it is password protected or behind a, uh, in a private group. And so the, there is, you know, luckily a lot of it isn't easily accessible, um, but it is if you, if you're trying. Um, and so, you know, I think we realize that even our approach won't stop at all. Like, uh, you know, when you go to the dark web and Tor browser and all that, um, that's some of those places are going to persist. And there are actually some great organizations, the, 
um, CCPC in out of Canada is doing amazing work crawling and reporting and, and documenting um, that kind of work. Uh, And, but um, you know, I think what we want to do is just make it as hard as possible. So uh, that, you know, it's about adding as many barriers as we can. And, And right now this is where the technology sits and then continuing to push to find the next level and the next level and the next level. And so it's a, you know, uh, it's an interesting, uh, it's an important social element, but it's a really interesting technical element too, you know, because when we, you know, when we originally developed the technology, we're, we're doing it for the, originally the UK um, National Police. And, uh, you know, you talked about a lot of this is typically cloud-based, so we had to build the algorithm and then and make it so it could work on computer systems that a typical investigator may have, which is not exactly, you're not talking uh, state-of-the-art rails here. Right. You're talking, you know, maybe a Windows 95 machine that, you know, is, you know, smoking when you turn it on. And so, yeah. um, we, you know, we had to kind of originally build the solutions so it could be run on relatively simple hardware. And so the great news is that then when you, you know, spin it up on a, on a rack with a GPUs, et cetera, it's a highly efficient um, way to do it. It's not as fast as the, you know, what has been uh, out there, you know, kind of the, j- just to give the audience a bit of a uh, understanding of kind of the giant leap forward that this technology um, provides. Um, back in 2008, Microsoft developed a really important, um, uh, product called photo DNA. It was using perceptual hashing to essentially fingerprint known images. And so you could quickly, um, scan your network to see if it was a, uh, a bit of CSAM that was already discovered. And so then, and fingerprinted. And so, and because a lot of these images often are in caches, it was a way to identify a lot of, a lot of bad actors. Right. But. Um, the technology really only uh, can only identify what's been found and what's been found through sources that can be put into the database. And so maybe, you know, the estimates range from two to 10% of, 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 uh, images, and it doesn't include any image created today or, you know, which particularly in the age of COVID, unfortunately, uh, the abuse of children has moved for as much because the opportunity, you know, you talked about the opportunity crime with bicycles. It's kind of, unfortunately it's the same with kids. You need access to at risk kids. Um, and when you're locked in homes, that isn't as possible. So, and you, you'd think that would be a good thing. What's happened is uh, with the advent of live streaming, you know, you and I, this amazing technology, you and I are talking right now. Uh, what's happened is a lot of this abuse has moved into that realm. And so you meet on a discord chat and you exchange Bitcoin somewhere else. And then you get on a private zoom and you're getting a performance quote unquote from a, from a developing country. And that poor child is literally a, like a slave actor that's being abused over and over for paying customers often from the developed world. Uh, and then they're recording that. And so, you know, that's being created live in the moment. And so, um, you know, moving from a post-fact, uh, ex-facto technology like perceptual hashing to something that's using computer vision, not only are we able to identify stuff that was created yesterday and shows up on a server, 
we're also able to apply it into video and about 50 to 60% of CSAM created today is video because everybody's walking around with a 4k camera in their pocket. Right. Um, and, uh, in the next couple months, we'll be coming out with a live streaming product that, uh, will allow, uh, allow organizations to, uh, essentially put a, you know, uh, put a filter on and, and understand if there's a crime happening in real time. Uh, the, again, this is about, um, preventing as much as we can moving forward. And, and it's constantly trying to keep up with the tactics that are being used. Now, what you brought up there is going to open up a very interesting conundrum for people who are privacy advocates and we you know in a sense as the star treks would call it uh, of the world the kobayashi maru where how do you make sure that you can capture live like it's it's a it's an intractable set of problems where either choice will not result in a win and this is the a really difficult situation because for look at what we're actually solving and solving for a very specific, very illegal thing. But in order to do so, we effectively have to capture data in flight. And in order to do that, it's, you know, now we suddenly have this real interesting boundary of protecting privacy and yet protecting the world. I, I, I think, yeah, I mean, there is, I mean, and I think that that's a constant tension uh, between privacy and surveillance. And I, and to be honest, I think it's an error to go all one way or the other. Like if we get to surveillance, uh, uh, society, we're, we're a damaged society. If we have complete freedom, um, of, uh, of from any kind of surveillance online, we are, it may make you and I feel better when we're talking about, uh, uh, our families, uh, with someone, but what we're really doing is providing cover for the worst of the worst. Right. And so we need to find a balance. Um, our technology, one of the great things about it, it's really the, the best analogy is it's like a virus scan. Like when you send a, when you send a document over email, it's not unreasonable for uh, that provider to go, is this, is this attachment a virus? Right. All we're doing is, I mean, essentially is, Hey, we're looking for a square. Is this a square? Oh, it's not a square. Okay. Move on. It's not actually looking at the content per se. Um, it's brief. It's looking for a pattern. And so, and if that pattern doesn't exist, it doesn't know what it is. It literally, the, 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 the rating is uh, benign. And so, um, we're, we're not looking at what people are saying. We're not looking at what, um, what there are now. There are obviously people on the privacy scale that go, well, even that's unacceptable. But I, to be honest, I think that um, it, is a, it is a problem of the privileged that uh, I'm worried about everything that I'm saying. There are certain things that we absolutely need to protect, financial transactions, communication with your doctor. Um, there, are, there are roles for encryption. But to be honest, if we're not careful, we're going to essentially just uh, cede uh, too much space to bad actors if that's our one and only focus. So I hope we can have a nuanced view of of privacy moving forward. I think 
understandably people have reacted that way around privacy because frankly, marketers like me overstepped, um, back like, you know, I, I, I was, you know, I, and you know, cause when you look at what, uh, you know, everybody talks about, oh, the government's going to know this about me. I'm like, do you have any idea what Amazon and Facebook and Google know about you? Like, it's a much more detailed picture. It's it, frankly, the old direct mail people know more about you right. than you'd, you'd ever know. I, there's a amazing uh, bit of uh, work. Uh, it's a, called Prism Clusters. And so essentially they, the, this company has taken the country and broken into 72 groups of people. And then they've assigned a cluster to every house in America. And you go and go, you look put your address in and, and it kicks back. And I'm like, Oh yeah, I do watch showtime at the Apollo at four in the morning. You yeah. know, it's a little, it's a little eerie. Um, I think the the um, degradation of privacy has been so steady and ongoing for 20 years. It's natural. There's going to be a snapback. We just have to be careful for, um, for the at risk uh, that we don't go take a step too far in that and, and be responsible with what we're doing. I think it makes perfect sense that we have some, we, we really do value privacy online, but we can't leave it. I, I don't, I don't think we can have an open, uh, a, a fully encrypted web. It just leads to, it's going to lead to too much, too many societal problems long-term just, you know, it's about finding a balance. Yeah. And, and we will, we will struggle through it in order to solve the problem. But the problem, uh, I always tell people it's the, we haven't solved the problem on either side. So we have to continue to try to solve the problem on either yep. side. Yep. And exactly. that means that there will be a continuous equilibrium that we have to strike. And yeah, I mean, I'm always torn of like, like obviously, the specifics of the problem that we need to solve here are, are massive, right? It's, it's it's dangerous materials, but you know, and it's, we we get a lot of sort of polarizing figures that have to really go to the forefront and sort of and fight for the you know either side of these these things, and you know it's 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 not a I have a huge respect for the fact that people have to go and, and have those discussions continuously and then ultimately go to Capitol Hill and, and go to the, the world. And, and this is, it's funny, we're sort of North American centric. You've mentioned Canada and we talk about Capitol Hill, of course, obviously a United States reference. Uh, as a <laughs> citizen of one country and a resident of the second one, I, I know both intimately. And then you go beyond to Europe and, and, and Asia and, and, you know, vastly different ways of handling privacy and and internet yep. access and and network access and you know they don't have this sort of broad ubiquitous you know access to these these tools like we do here mm -hmm. it isn't really interesting thing as you start to go beyond the the localized you know continent uh, that the, the problem this is why again massive respect to you and the team for like you you're solving a problem that everybody can use these tools in order to solve this problem there there's probably a lot of other things that through the developments you're making that will make other things better you know and uh, so it's 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 amazing let's talk about the social good side of it because you talked about it as like the company itself is set up 
as a, a I think it's, like, it's called public good. And it's, there's a Delaware specific type. I've actually had a few folks on that ha that have, there's a designation where you actually not beyond just fiduciary responsibility, there's actually a social responsibility as part of the corporation. Yeah, we're a public benefit corporation. Yes, yeah, sorry, they, sorry. Uh, I, 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 that's I okay, that's up, okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think that was a, a critical part um, of who we are. We're, we're part of actually a, 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 a conglomerate of companies. A conglomerate isn't quite the right word because we're not uh, connected, but a family, I think, is a better way to put it. And when some of those were started, so if you eat at Whole Foods, Rebel Rebel Drinks is one of the fastest growing natural drinks in the history right, of the U.S. Yeah, yeah, I, it I was Rebel Milk. I uh, I enjoy yeah. their uh, their their not their coconut milk coffee. <laughs> well. One of the things you may not realize because it is delicious and that's really what's driven the the growth there is that it was created to fight human trafficking in the Amazon. Wow. That's why the, that's why rebel exists today because, uh, we, uh, we, I, I'm putting myself in a, I was not involved, but, uh, just business and uh, not for sale realized that as, uh, environmental degradation was happening in the Amazon. People that were living sustainably on the land for thousands of years were getting pushed into, into um, villages in the Amazon, and then they were being trafficked. And what they did is they created a uh, roots, um, extracts, barks, berries, and leaves, rebel <laughs> um, company in the Amazon um, and and gave it to uh, set it up and then gave it to the local residents and then created demand through the, dr the drink um, and created a virtuous cycle of protecting the, the people in the Amazon while um, funding it through the rebel drinks. And so um, as a result, trafficking in that area, of the Amazon is down by 50%. Wow. You know, um, and so, but you wouldn't know that uh, with Rebel because it's simply a really good product. Um, when they got, when they set up, there was no public benefit corporation. And so they had to work really hard to bake in and build in their mission into their company. And they've done a, a great job doing that. We're excited because now there's that structure yeah, in an place, actual um, an actual designation that that really clarifies it for uh, ownership. Um, if we ever bring on investors, right now we don't have investors. Um, if we ever bring on investors, it makes it really clear what you're buying into, and I think that that's really important. Um, and you know, that's one of the other reasons why I'm so excited to be part of Kurnam is really kind of showing that third wave way of capitalism that using the tools of the capital markets to solve big problems. Um, because I don't think this is one of those problems that we can do on a small scale. It has to scale. It has to be uh, a global in scope. Um, and so we, we, you know, we need all the tools available to us. And so finding this hybrid um, of a public benefit corporation is a really powerful tool for us. Really powerful. Now talking about the name. So uh, now I know what rebel stands for, which I didn't realize. Uh, let's talk about Krunam. Where did the name come from? It, we are named in honor of a uh, child uh, protection warrior in Thailand. Her name is Kru Nam, two words. Um, and she, uh, 
20 years ago, was a street artist in Chiang Mai, actually doing very well, and did a project with the kids on the street going, hey, let's paint, and you can paint about your life, and then was horrified when she saw what they painted and, and realized that many of the uh, karaoke shops in Chiang Mai were actually fronts for child prostitution. And unlike 99.9% of the world, she just started walking into these uh, karaoke bars and grabbing the kids. And to the point where she had 20 kids in her apartment and the traffickers came to her and said, if you do this again, we're going to kill you. So she got out of Dodge. And so she went and set up an area to to take care of these kids, these largely stateless um, kids, uh, orphans, uh, up in the northern, the Golden Triangle of Thailand, uh, where she ran into uh, one of our board members, uh, David Batstone. Um, and he was writing a book on human trafficking and wrote a story about her and said, hey, um, if you ever need help, here's my card. She didn't even know what a business card was. Uh, and uh, about six months later, the the hut that they were all living in burned down in a cooking accident. And she called and said, uh, or she, she found an internet cafe and went, I'm going to try to this crazy American and see if he can help. And they ended up building, uh, uh, rebuilding the, the hut. And now she saved thousands and thousands of kids. Um, in fact, one of the first kids she pulled out recently was the first stateless child in the history of Thailand to graduate from college. And so, uh, she over the years has constantly focused on saving as many kids as possible and evolving your techniques to save as many kids of, uh, as possible. And so we like to say, we're trying to take what she's doing in IRL and bring it to the URL. And so, um, and, and scale it into the digital space. And so it was just made logical sense for us to honor her by naming, uh, the naming the company after her. That's an incredible tribute, you know, it's yeah. an incredible person. That's uh, yeah. here's the interesting thing. And, and this is why it's, it's amazing. Like the, the, the thing that you're taking on as a, as a company and ultimately as a, as a person, you're a very jovial person. Like <laughs> this is a real, it's a really tough thing. I, like I said, I work with, you know, police and we talked about like, we know about the phrase like gallows humor, you know, and, and that the folks that were effectively, you know, having to take people to the gallows, they had to have these really sort of, you know, challenged life situations. So they, they had these interesting, dark senses of humor and you're not even dark. Like you've, you've, you, I can get dark, <laughs> but it's, it is a really, how do you balance the weight with, of the thing that you're taking on and like kind of cleanse your, yourself, your soul and, and like your, the way that you look at it and you look at the world, you know, does it ever weigh heavy on you? Well, I, I think if at any point you dive into the worst things about this world, it's, it's really brutal. I think it's absolutely vital to separate what you can control and what you can't control and, and really focus what's happening in the future, what's happened in the past and what can you impact in this moment. And so I think mindfulness has been a practice that I've had to really embrace and be, what can I do right now? that can make the world a better place. And um, if you can live 
in the now with a realistic view of what happened and what will happen and know that you're making your small dent in the world, it's not as heavy. It's not as, uh, it's not as crushing because I think it's really, this is, if, if you, if you dwell on it and you sit in it, it is a mind numbingly depressing thing. And I think, unfortunately, that heaviness is one of the reasons why people largely don't even think about it. Right. Yeah. It's, one of, you know, it, you know. it's a tough thing because, you know, in, like any large social situation, the the weight of what you can't do often outweighs the belief of what you in and, and the trust and the value in what you can do. And, and it's hard yes. for people to take that on because they know. I mean, it's like it's effectively a marathon of social responsibility. Most people will never begin because they don't believe they can finish. Right. And there is no, and if you realize that the fight will never be over, because even if we quote unquote solve this problem, we've probably created another problem as we do that. Um, and so what we're always trying to do is, a, is, continue to refine to make things better. And if better is the goal versus perfect, um, every day is, every day is rewarding. Every day is, um, not too heavy. Um, I think, and you know, to be honest, one of the, I, I, I could come on here and, and share just horrific stories and horrific stats because, you know, 70 million instances of CSAM is horrific enough, but it, believe me, it gets a lot darker. Yeah. Um, but I need, I and everyone fighting CSAM in the world need people like you and your listeners to not just turn away when they, when they think about this or hear about this. I need um, them to be able to talk about it uh, with legislators with the companies they interact with to, to have this um, sit within them in a way that this isn't something that you just avert your eyes because this evil survives in darkness. And so um, being a happy warrior is one way to do that. And, uh, and so I, I'm, I'm, uh, uh, I'm lucky enough that um, I've, had to live through enough in my life that I've had to figure out how to do this on my own and with a lot of help from other people. But I think it's critical for us to make the world a better place is to really focus on what we can do versus the absolute, you know, what we can't. Yeah. And, and even in just in the day-to-day activities that we take on, right. If I, I often think it like, if I can, if I can have some meaningful, small impact on somebody in some way every day, that's my goal. Right. And, and it's not even, you know, what I like, I do mentoring and, and, and I've been mentored, you know, uh, I continue to seek those opportunities and it's in, obviously, you know, we look at, you're looking to achieve a goal and a personal goal. And, and what it always comes down to is to be effective on this is not to think of the goal as the destination, but the path to the goal is the, is the real thing that you want to learn. And you know, a phrase that I always enjoy is it's not about being the best. It's about being better than yesterday. Amen. And, and, That's and exactly it, right. So if we can do that and then 
you know, to achieve these things of social good and just in any societal good. It's not, if it could be solved and completed, it's not a bloody problem. Like it's, it would have been solved and completed. We have, you know, the, the amazing thing is that there are folks like yourself who are looking for what have been deemed intractable problems and proving that they're not. And that's what really makes me warm inside to know that it's like, there are so many great folks that are out there that, that they're just, you don't even have to say like, I'm tired of it. Like it, but it's like literally saying like, I, I'm sure that there's a way that we can have a positive effect on this situation and they go for it. And it's, and to set up. So this is the, the other thing as well, setting a, a commercial organization around this, you have this, you know, as an organization, of course, you're defined, you know, by the way that the corporation is built, that you have to have a social responsibility and, and, and as part of it, but even just you all, you have to run a business and this is mm -hmm. where charities are often one of the ones that I find are, are the most horrifying. Cause when you find out the cost of management, it's like, you know, people are, you know, one penny goes to the person that needs it. And the CEO of the charity is getting paid $3.2 million a year in flying around on a private jet. We see that kind of situation all the time, but which again, sort of breaks people from understanding that you do have to have some commercial, you know, value to be able to run the business. This technology that you're you're inventing and creating and and making novel and available, it's not free. It requires you to build a business around it to allow it to thrive, to do better and do good, right? Well, yeah, I mean, I think one of the important things and one of the reasons why um, we wanted to create a third path uh, towards this is um, we're self-selecting into paths of nonprofit and for-profit. And um, we needed to put together a world-class team and so sometimes that means compensating people appropriately. We're literally competing with Facebook and Google and Snapchat and fill in the blank for talent. Yeah. Um, and so we need to be able to, you know, otherwise we're going to be kind of uh, valiant, but not never being able to get there. Um, and so, you know, and, you know, to be honest, um, you know, a lot of uh, nonprofits are doing amazing, great work. Uh, and, you know, there's obviously examples of people who have abused the system to overpay themselves. But by and right. large, everybody there in that space are, are doing great work um, and trying to put as much forward, you know, and I think some of the administration stuff is actually a bit of a misnomer because you have to pay your people and you have to pay good people. Um, you don't need a private jet and $3.2 million. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but you know, frankly, we're running our business the same way. I don't need a private jet. I don't need $3.2 million. Um, our, our, you know, if you're running your business properly, you're also not super top heavy and overspending on those kind of things. Um, and so, you know, we're trying to just put together a world-class team. And when we sit down, uh, in a meeting with, a you know, a Microsoft or Google or Facebook that we can be taken legitimately as a, as a, as a peer, um, albeit a much smaller peer, but, um, I think, uh, too often, uh, 
you know, you get in a room with a nonprofit and you're like, okay, um, children are a bad issue. So I need you to make it cheaper for me to solve a problem that I created. Yeah. Um, nobody's asking a company that builds, um, air scrubbers in chimneys and factories to take a discount because it helps the environment. I don't think these companies, these companies are making a ton of money, a ton. Um, and their toxic waste, their waste product is the negative impact, the harmful speech that is, is flowing through their systems. It's their, and they, and most of them see it's their responsibility to clean this up. And so we're actually, you know, when you, when we go to talk to a Google or we talk to a Facebook, we're bringing them a solution that will actually save them money and make their systems um, cleaner and protect their people. Um, and so it makes sense that if we're building value for them, that we should extract some. And particularly since we're, when we extract that value, we're going to be plowing it into other technologies to do more, uh, to do more, to make the world a better place. And so, um, again, it's creating that virtuous cycle. Um, we can only do that if we play by the same rules that our, 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 uh, our compatriots are playing by. And so, um, believe me, none of us at Krunam are here to get rich but we want to be fairly compensated. And I don't think that that's a, I, I think that uh, that's not an unfair thing. Um, and I think if we don't ask for uh, the companies that are, are kind of exacerbating this problem to be responsible, we're actually denigrating the problem and denigrating the pain of those that are abused. And so um, unfortunately we're a world that um, often equates uh, financial resources to human value. And I, right. I don't, necessarily agree with that, but that's a truth. And so, um, uh, I think, uh, there, there's nothing wrong with us going, Hey, we're, we're going to make, we're, we're going to create value for you. We're going to extract a little of that value because we created it for you. And then we're going to plow it back into doing the right thing. Amen. That is the, uh, that's, that's where it needs to be. You know, and now your own background is so you've, you came from, you know, marketing tech and you worked in, in agencies, you've done a lot. You've, you've got, you've walked an interesting path that brought you to here, but in effect, I think there's this really interesting thing that the, the way in which you solved those problems allowed you to be able to, you know, look, this needs to be marketed. Like this is like, in order to think about how to impact things like marketing, is a fantastic thing. I had a, a Twitter conversation with a friend of mine and, uh, and he said something about like, you know, salespeople, you know, like they're out there grinding it. And that's the reason why these businesses are going to thrive and survive. And I said, yes, uh, on the, on the shoulders of marketing, you know? And I said, he says, you know, I said, how do you think that they get those sales? He says, cold calls. And I said, how do you think they got those numbers? <laughs> You know, like I'm not yeah. saying that one supersedes the other. I'm saying it's a pairing, it's a partnership. Mm -hmm. And marketing, like God bless Bill Hicks, right? You know, one of my most famous uh, comedy routines. And he talked about marketing, and he just literally is on stage saying, "Okay, if anybody here in marketing, I need you to kill yourself," because like <laughs> he he just basically just berated and thrashed the marketing industry. He says, "I know what you're saying. I know what you're saying." Bill's using the 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 apathy demographic and like, it's a good demographic, you know, it's good, you know, good. And he's like, 
it was funny as he goes through it because he realized there is this like, okay, yeah, I get it. We, we kind of do that stuff sometimes, but that's how we get social good. That's how we get products to market. It's the same techniques that allow people to have infinite scroll on an app pull people in to spend more time in app is the techniques that we can use for positivity you know which is why like the social dilemma movie recently was a great example people are like oh good golly right and this is tristan harris who like worked and developed the systems in which people have abused them like i actually have the book from bj fogg called persuasive computing i've been a long time sort of like outside student i didn't go to stanford but like I've followed BJ Fogg and his his writings and 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 his studies for a long time, and you realize that just like a the difference between a magician doing a card trick for you and somebody taking your wallet as a pickpocket is the the path that we choose. <laughs> and so I saw all these things, and like so the social dilemma brought this stuff, and you're like, oh my goodness, we've got all this stuff. I'm like, so. There's a personal choice that comes in the balance of how we do these things. So this is what's amazing. So anyways, I've long way to get around to like what brought you to marketing that then brought you to found a company. And this is a, a really neat transition. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because I kind of stumbled into marketing. Um, I had been on Wall Street and I quit cold turkey. I'd been producing theater in the background to keep myself sane. Uh, well, I, I'd like to say when I was on Wall Street, I had the aptitude, but not the attitude. They yeah. just weren't my people. Um, and uh, so I literally was working on the, uh, starting up a, a restaurant, uh, which is another weird path that I thankfully <laughs> didn't pa didn't do. But um, uh, and I but I needed cash. I just needed a job. And so I took a t I got I had the funniest job interview I've ever had in my life uh, when I was. Uh, talking to my first ad agency, they go, uh, we're looking for someone for a three month project and we're not going to hire you full time. And I go, thank you. I don't <laughs> want to work in marketing. Perfect. <laughs> but um, when I got there, what I found was this amazing intersection of, uh, of, uh, of creativity and business and, and I, I was lucky enough to be there right, literally right at the cusp that when, right after the first internet bubble had popped and the, and so the very nascent beginnings of the actual digital marketing space. And they knew my background had been in like technology, et cetera, on wall street. And so they're like, well, could you help us out here? And, you know, it'll be like 10% of your time. And it quickly became just a huge, huge thing. Um, and, you know, when I look, I, I watched The Social Dilemma with a bit of cringe uh, right. when I watched it because what it was, because I, you know, I, I, I put myself as partially culpable there. I was one of the early, I remember when I was like, do I really have to buy search on Google and Yahoo? Yahoo's so big. Why would I ever use that guy? Um, and like one of the first deals on Facebook. Facebook and one of the first programmatic uh, deals. I mean, like I've, I've been at the kind of cutting edge of marketing tech um, and it was an engineering driven conversation. And I was always there with, through the prism of frankly, some high, some brands that were um, not as direct response driven, 
which, you know, kind of leads to very transactional mindset. But I was there with large global brands, Harley Davidson, Microsoft, um, General Mills. Like I was working with some world-class brands. And so I was constantly kind of putting a, a screen of, well, is this bad on yeah. top of it? Um, and, but even with that, I know that I made decisions that has contributed to essentially surveillance capitalism. Um, cause I was like, Oh, I want more data because, and that data is not personally identifiable. So it's okay. Um, and so, but I was constantly trying to solve business problems through technology. And so on that level, I'm doing the exact same thing right now. I'm solving business and societal problems through technology and constantly looking for how we uh, move and evolve and use the tools to do that. And so on that level, my skills fit this problem. You know, we talked about like, how am I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm don't feel very dark and heavy with this. It's largely because I found a spot where my skills are really valuable. I, I grew up in Minneapolis, um, and we're, we're having a racial justice issue here in, in Minnesota right now. Thank, sure, thankfully, yeah. appropriately. Um, I don't have the right skills to solve that problem. You know, like my, my skills aren't help, aren't very helpful there. I, this is one where my skills can, um, can be a multiplier in the word world. And so I'm, um, on that level, you know, everything in my past has kind of led up to being really the right person for this. Um, and the, it's interesting cause I was on, on the marketing side for years. You talked about marketing and sales. Um, you know, I often said, you know, I'm going to make it easier for the salespeople to get the door open. Like whether it was like a company like Granger or, uh, Edward Jones or somebody like that. Like, it's like, okay, let's make that door open easier for that person. Um, it's a little wild being on a startup and being the marketing and sales. So like my morning is spent like maybe doing, you know, uh, uh, like managing the company and this, but then I'm, do, I'm doing those, those sales calls in the afternoon. Um, I see the need for marketing. Let's just say that. Cause they go, yeah. who are you? It, it, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, um, and I can tell who's talked to somebody else when I've, when I get on the phone and know, know about us. And we haven't been around that long. Um, it's a fundamentally different conversation. So, uh, thinking systemically about it is a critical thing. <laughs> yeah. And it's, and it's amazing when you actually break down and that's why I've always, my favorite thing was I studied behavioral psychology and that's what makes me work with computers much better because I know yeah. how people work uh, and I know how people break and people say like, what's the, what's the thing that like the book you recommend to best understand how to like build great software products. It's a DSM four. It's the uh, statistical manual of, of disorders. And said like, the only way you know how people work is when you know how they break. And well, and, and, and I think on, on a, a more practical basis, I would say thinking fast and slow by uh, Daniel Kahneman. Absolutely. Is another, yeah. another, another great one to really understand how people interact and, and where, um, our brains just misfire sometimes. Yeah. Um, and so I think behavioral, uh, behavioral economy is, is, is a brilliant, brilliant area of study. I'm, I'm glad there are people smarter than me that figured all that out. Well, that's incredible. Yeah. And like Dan Ariely is another one who I've, I've very so much enjoy watching his, his talks and reading his materials. And like the one that was an interesting one is he talked about this, the, the dice roll, uh, payout and, and the scenario was, 
you know, you roll a set, you roll a die, and then whatever the number is on top or on bottom will be if it's you know it adds up to seven, right? To six on the bottom, one on the top, or the reverse, right? Or five and two. So we know how the how that works. And you know, statistically, it's there's no choice of like how often it lands on one or the other. It it may uh, by meeting an average work out, but it's you know it has as much chance to be a one as it does to be a six. So what he did was he said, I want you to choose, you know, you are going to get paid, you know, $10 for each dot. And you choose in advance of the roll, whether you want the top or the bottom. <laughs> and then he says, so you say, okay, I'm going to go with top. And they roll it and it's a, a one. And like, you can sense the sort of disappointment, of course, because they should have got this at bottom would have been a six. You know, he goes through the scenario this way. And then he says, okay, now what I want you to do is I want you to not tell me which one you chose <laughs> until after you complete the roll. And he says, and suddenly people were very lucky. And this was a behavior. He said, so what we did was, of course, then we also measured their behaviors and like a, basically wear, have them wear a polygraph to like sense their their body motions and and detect where they were lying and this is the whole idea of like testing the 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 presence of honesty and the impact on influence you know through gain and so he says we go through this thing he says now what we did was we took exactly the same experiment and instead of saying that you will get paid ten dollars for every dot or whatever the number was that it will go towards charity and what we did was we took exactly the same scenario. They choose after the role. The money goes to a charity. And he says, and then what we found was that people were equally lucky, except <laughs> they've passed the polygraph. He says, because they felt literally... They were doing the right thing. They were Because they were doing the right thing, they didn't feel that they were lying. Whew. That's so. There's a real. I I, I think you just defined American, thing about it, right? <laughs> yeah. I think you just defined American politics in a nutshell, right there. But anyway, <laughs> and it, so it. What's amazing to me is when you when I find those things, and then you see them, like you said, thinking fast and slow. What what Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky, you know, brought to the market is it's incredible. And I see these things play out. You know, and you talk about like the cold calling and the things like Jeb Blunt is a great example of somebody who sees a book called Fanatical Prospecting, and it's like, look, I. I like reading about Jeb Blunt's and, you know, even the crazy ones like the Jordan Belfort, who is, you know, of course, definitely he was very comfortable with lying for the greater good <laughs> being his bank account. But there's a reason why these people are able to exploit is a tough word because exploit just means you're you're leveraging not necessarily taking advantage. Exploiting can be yeah. a positive exploitation. Yep. Well, yep. obviously what we've talked about at the start of this conversation is our, our true, the, the true negative side of exploitation. But what, what we can get is like you, you watch how these things work so that when you want to do good, you use the same techniques. And that's why, like said, Tristan Harris, he leads out this group. I, I can't remember exactly when it is. It's like the Center for Humane Design, I think it's called. Uh, I, should, I should know it, but there's... Let's use the same techniques. Let's use the tools like ad tech. Let's like use it for, for positive results. Yep, well, exactly. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a fantastic time to be able to, we know so much more about how we can have a positive impact on the world. And uh, it's amazing. So I, 
theater. So go ahead. Yeah. The the other flip of that experiment, and as it applies to what we're talking about today, is um, the anonymity of uh, of not getting caught lying. Right. Um, that is the definition of a lot of behavior online. Um, and you know, uh, when you're obscured, like when you're in your car, you're more likely to yell at somebody because you're, they, they just see a a Chevy. They don't see you. Um, and you see that in behavior online, people are much nastier to each other online, but you know, that's, I think one of the reasons why you need a crew knob, you need something like this because there is, um, uh, an area where people are, uh, allow their darker impulses to come free because they feel anonymous and, and protected by that, that keyboard in front of them. And, uh, all the more reason why I, you know, when, when you think about that element of human behavior, why a fully encrypted web is a really dangerous thing with human nature. Um, because, um, uh, as positive a person I am, I'm, a uh, I'm, I, I I've seen enough data to uh, not necessarily, uh, I, I'm not surprised when people are self-interested. Let's just say that. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it, and I said it, the, the thing that excites me about where we've, let's bring all this together, right. That there's a diversity of interests that actually highlight an, an inline underlying skill that people have. And you talk about like, you know, marketing leading to what you can solve as a problem with Crunom, right? And, and making sure we can bring this to the world. Theater is funny. I was going to mention it because there's a very interesting thing of an incredible amount of pre-work to the gen, then get immediate feedback. So yeah. while in the performance, it seems like that's like they start the performance, they end the performance, there's applause in the middle. You can sense there's like real sentiment analysis that's continuously going on during a two hour or, or, or three hour performance. But what nobody sees is the 18 months of preparation, set design, the hiring, the rehearsals, the, the, the changes you made, the producer's work to be able to say, like, people don't even know what a producer even is half the time, you know, or a director. Like, it's like just people just know that uh, Steven Spielberg's a director. All right. So that means he must be like writing the movie. Oh, well, he, maybe he wrote some of it, but mo no, they have screenplay uh, writers and they've got people that took the original book and then converted it to a screenplay. Like there's all this incredible pre-work so that during the 90 minute movie, you know why people are standing up and screaming at the screen. And, and like, that's the, there's a long path to immediate feedback. Yes. Yes. Yeah, it's interesting that uh, I think I learned more about business in my 18 months producing independent theater than I did in 20 years working on the top brands in the world. Yeah, because what I understood, what I learned was, um, you have to put a message in the right context. Like if you do fan of the opera in a 40 seat black box theater, it's not going to work. And if you do a really emotional piece on a giant stage, it's not going to work. Um, I learned how to uh, navigate uh, personalities as separate as an actor, a writer, a, uh, a tech person, uh, very different people, uh, front of house staff. And we ran a bar. And so, um, and also just how little things impacted a performance. 
So um, I found I, I ran a uh, I ran a theater for a theater here in Minneapolis called the Brave New Workshop. So I ran a secondary stage for them over in St. Paul, and uh, it was a com it was comedy theater, and literally the show was better when people had a little more social lubrication when we sold more beer. Right. And so not only did I want to sell more beer because it, that was how we made our money, but, um, the show was better if we did. And so I was constantly working with, how do I like, do I elongate, um, uh, intermission? Do I do this? Do I do that? And I found, Things like simply moving the tables in the bar closer to the bar so it looked like people were standing at the bar, like increased beer sales by 20%. And yeah. so when you see little things, how, and then when the beer sales were up by 20%, then the feedback, the laughter in the show was louder and uh, the, the referrals to uh, other people were higher. Uh, when you see those kind of changes, it impacted how I thought about um digital marketing. I mean, you do that, you, you change, you know, you change one little thing on a website and, you know, you just move a button from the bottom to the top or fill in the blank. And you see these fundamental changes. Um, all these things I saw, I learned while producing theater, desperately trying not to lose money. Um, and, uh, it was, uh, you know, I, I, it was kind of my secret weapon for years and years that, uh, what I learned, uh, producing theater. Yeah, so it has a good, an interesting personal comparison. I, my background in technology was I, as I was a kid, I started in technology when I was 15. My dad was a technologist. And so I was doing literally database programming and data entry for a police station when I was 15 years old, which, oh, I, wow. which may or may not have been legal to do so as, <laughs> as I was getting exposed to some wild stuff in there. But the then I I discovered uh, alcohol and girls and I, I I I diverged from my technology path. I mean, it was like, you know, at the time of there was no technology school. You need to be particularly good at school. Anyways, mm -hmm. I went. So I was like, now I started my own landscaping company when I was seventeen, and then I started. I did a lot of other odd odd jobs, and I just did whatever would work. And at one point, I actually worked at a shoe repair. So I was a cobbler. And <laughs> I went and, and I was I became particularly good at the people side of the business to get sales mm -hmm. up and to get people to come back. And I, I was like, it just makes sense to me. And it taught me a lot about if I, like you said, if I move things around, if I move displays, if I change the way I close the sale, like it, I can mm -hmm. do a lot more things. And I learned about upsells. I learned about all these different things. And it was like stuff that I just did that then I measured and was able to, through that effectively, become better at it. And then I, they gave me the store that was losing money hand over fist. And they're like, by the way, you're, this is your store as of Monday. Uh, you're moving <laughs> to a different city and you're going for it. I'm like, all right, cool. This is your first job is to fire the existing manager. I'm like, this is not cool. So I go there. <laughs> And I worked day in, day out. And the first thing I did was like measure the pattern of people that come through the store, learn who the regulars are, learn mm -hmm. the behaviors of the store because it, it, the store has a behavior pattern. It has. Mm -hmm. And then from there, I set up the displays and I did different stuff. And I went, it went from a money losing store to reaching revenue neutrality, which was a huge thing for the price that we were paying for this location because it was right by a subway in the middle of Toronto. Oh, wow. Profoundly expensive, little tiny closet sized, you know, <laughs> cobbler shop. And then 
we ended up winning a marketing uh, award from the mall. So Cadillac Fairview is a is a big mall. Anyway, so they we won an award, and I thought this is the most bizarre thing in my life. I'm a kid that's doing database programming. Now I'm fixing shoes and I won a marketing award because of the way I set up shoe polish because I can increase like, and it in through that, I realized that kind of like your experience, right? It's like, I can have a very direct impact on things if I measure how to do it. So I can learn exactly. to do it better and I can teach other people and I can, it, it really taught me. So when I got into back into technology and then ultimately now I'm in technical marketing, it's this beautiful pairing of all these things coming together. And it's, uh, it's amazing. And like I said, so to your, to your point, you know, Chris, like to then take that and to run the business and to attack a real incredible challenge of, of doing social good and using technology for the best of its capabilities, learning to map, to understand human behavior and to undo the negative is, uh, my, uh, my hat goes off to you, uh, and the team on, on what you're doing at Crunom. It's, uh, and you. of course, like I said, the, the, the story of the name itself, if that doesn't make people stop for a second and think about, you know, the impact that people can have on the world, it's, it's pretty incredible. Well, and it keeps our ego in check because we'll never measure up to her. So that helps. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and that's it. So it's, it's fantastic. So from, from theater to marketing to, you know, from wall Street to, to main Street, and from main streets, you know, uh, we didn't even get to the Capitol Hill side. We probably don't want to visit that. It's a dark times. You know, it, that, I tell you, that's, I'm fascinated by that whole process this whole thing of like, I, I yield my time to the gentle lady from Wisconsin and uh, thank you to the gentleman from whatever. I'm like, just say what you want to say. Like it's so, there's so much like pomp and process around this stuff. It's, it's horrifying to watch from the outside. Cause he realized there's, there's so much theater. There's way more theater on Capitol Hill than there is on, uh, in, in, in New York. But, but my, my story in uh, politics was much less pomp and circumstance. I essentially opened mail for the person that opens mail for the lowest ranking Congress member. <laughs> so, um, uh, I, I was essentially the pre nine 11 anthrax monkey and didn't realize it. So there you go. <laughs> we got a great job for you, Chris. All you got to do is open envelopes and uh, here, put on this mask just in case. Don't worry about it. Why it's just that it's dusty in here. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, you're, you're, you're doing fantastic things and it's a real pleasure to share time with you today, Chris. Thank you very much. Yeah. Folks, it was a really a great conversation. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. For folks that do want to find out, of course, it's Krunam, K-R-U-N-A-M dot C-O, I, I believe is correct. And yeah. uh, and if, if they want to reach out to you uh, directly, Chris, what's the best way to do that? Uh, well, either through LinkedIn. I'm one of the few people that actually like LinkedIn. Nice. Um, and <laughs> and <laughs> I'm a contrarian. I can't help it. Um, and But also just e you can email me and it's it's really easy. It's chris.wexler at crunom.co. So it's really cool. easy to reach out if you want to, um, if you either are uh, at one of these large companies and you want to understand how uh, any company that holds third-party data and uh, you want to understand how your company could apply our technology, feel free to reach out. Or if you just want to chat, I'm, uh, we're open to building coalitions everywhere. Excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for that.